This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8 through 11. You're listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of TMTS. Uh, Rowdy has been on vacation, so it's another time for one of our bonus episodes. This week, I would like to address the importance of sticking with the text. Now, you know, this is something that all students of the Bible claim to do, but how many of us actually do it? Well, you know, that's another story. And, you know, don't think that I'm pontificating in any way because I struggle with this just as much as the next person. But it's an important point to face head on. We must critically examine the text on its own presentation and not how we've received it from whatever tradition we've received it from. And, you know, this is something that, you know, not only Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox Christians are guilty of, but Protestants are also guilty of it because their reading of Scripture is informed by a tradition, that being the tradition started by Luther's 95 Theses and the famous Five Sole. And then, you know, depending on what denomination of Protestantism one belongs to, those individual sects are usually organized around a statement of faith, whether it be the famous Westminster Confession or something similar to that nature. It often revolves around the work of a singular theologian, too, in their interpretation of Scripture, like that of the Reformed Calvinists. And even when a church proposes itself as being non-denominational, I've hardly ever seen a church website without some sort of statement of faith with a list of propositions. Those propositions lay out theological statements, which, whether they like it or not, are part of a larger tradition which is outside the text. Like if the church is Trinitarian, per se, it's always indebted to church fathers like Tertullian and Athanasius and Gregory the Theologian. It's not like these fathers invented the Trinity, but they laid out the language of the Trinity, language which is not found in the original text, but developed by theologians in order to address heresy and promote the unity of belief. All Christian creeds are informed by their tradition, and I've never seen an exception to this rule, because in the realm of religion, I think it's pretty much impossible. Now, 
is tradition always bad? Of course not. Or as Paul would say, by no means. I'm Eastern Orthodox, so I adore the tradition of my church. But that doesn't mean that I should make Scripture bend to my tradition, because Scripture is the measuring stick, not my tradition, which, which, which means that, that it should bend to the Scripture. Now, of course, this seems obvious, and no church is going to consciously move away from this, you know, and, and admit to it, per se. But how many of us actually put this into practice, though, and challenge ourselves to do it? Not many of us. Most of us gather around our tribal circles, and that's good enough for us. But why? Well, that comes to the main point of this presentation. The problem is that we've boiled down biblical faith into what we believe intellectually. I think that that is the key to understanding this whole thing, and that's where it all fell flat. And that's the problem with theology as a concept. It renders what God has revealed to us through Scripture into philosophical propositions. It turns Christianity into a philosophy, which is something that we definitely see in the early centuries of the church. The Hellenized world, in the wake of the philosophical explosion of Athens centuries earlier, was a hotbed of various beliefs and philosophies about the world. It included metaphysics and how to practically live your life. It was a school of ideas. It was an, an arena of ideas where these ideas would, would combat each other. And to the vantage point of a Greek, Christianity was just another one of those ideas. We can see it in the debates that Justin Martyr had, who is actually sometimes known as Justin the Philosopher. All of these debates were apologetics for, you know, basically just apologetics, apologizing in, in terms of defending, that's what that word originally means, defending the rationality of the scriptural teaching. I mean, that was the original idea, but in so doing, it made the scripture less of a command and more of a more of a theology worldview a thought exercise something to be argued by rhetoric right was it tenable was it logical and the logic of the cross for example is the primary springboard for athanasius's monumental work on the incarnation right i mean that is we orthodox we love this one right we quote it all the time but very few of us have actually read it, one, and very few of us know what the original intent of the writing was, right? He's not interpreting scripture. He's really not focusing it so much on like the, the impregnation of Mary by the Holy Spirit or the virgin birth or anything like that. He's making an apology for the rationality of the cross. He's attacking Greek thought with the quote-unquote Christian thought. But is that what scripture is calling us to do? Is it there to inform our worldview? Is it there to make sure that we have the right opinion? The word orthodox, you know, I'm think, I'm, I, I think about this all the time, being orthodox. The word orthodox in Greek literally means the, the straight or upright opinion or doctrine, right? It was, it was used by the church to describe itself after the councils, to distinguish itself from, you know, the, 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 the heretical 
sects of Christianity, which uh, were the the opposing arguments, right? It was all argument based. It was all based around, uh, you know, this 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 type of rhetoric. And that word in Greek it means the the upright, straightforward opinion or doctrine, right? Doctrine that docks at the end of orthodox, that comes from dokeo, which is where we get the word doctrine from. But is that what scripture is asking of us? Is it asking us to have the right opinion on a matter? What does scripture say? Well, I think the most lucid text into this matter is is found in the epistle of St. James. So I'm going to be reading a, a large chunk of text covering the 22nd verse of the first chapter through the entirety of the second. Look, James lays this out better than anyone can, so let's hear it together. But before I do, I'm going to take a sip of water because this is <laughs> it's a lot of reading. Just give me one second here. All right, keep the vocal cords hydrated. Okay, in verse 22 it says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law and the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you sit over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into the court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it is dead. So someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from the works is dead. So that presents us with the big elephant in the room. If it is living out the faith that matters, why does scripture seemingly make a big deal out of belief? Well, we have to understand the original linguistic concept around scriptural belief. Most of our hearers will be aware of this, but it's good to have a fresh rundown. Both the Hebrew aman and the Greek pistis both literally mean trust. It's not so much the intellectual belief that something exists or is true, it's a trust in the proposition and the one who issued it. The difference goes like this. If my doctor diagnoses my illness and prescribes me medication, I trust that his diagnosis and prescription are accurate because realistically, who am I to disagree? So now being aware of the diagnosis, I'm now going to take the prescribed dosage of the medication that was issued for me. It might even be that he prescribes not medication, but a lifestyle change. Perhaps he says, I need to get at least 30 minutes of exercise five days a week, or I need to add more fiber to my diet. This has no bearing on my worldview or anything like that. It's, it's just practical. The diagnosis informed me of the disease, and the prescription is a model for how to deal with it. Okay, so let's put this into scriptural terms. The disease is sin. The diagnosis is the Mosaic law, and the prescription is the gospel. This is Paul, right? Let's, let's hear his, his uh, letter to the Galatians, starting in chapter 3, verse 19. Why then the law, Paul says, it was added because transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order 
that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ, neither is there Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What about this has anything to do with believing something intellectually? When he speaks of faith, he is using that word pistis again, which literally means trust. Well, what do I do if I trust my doctor, right? I don't just believe what he says is true. I actually change my behavior because I want to be healed. The change of behavior is not an after effect of faith. It is inextricably tied to it. It can't exist without it. That's why James clarifies this in his letter precisely so that we don't misunderstand what Paul had written earlier. In many ways, James is clarifying misunderstandings that could and do arise after reading Paul. This is probably why Martin Luther didn't like James, because James was seemingly disagreeing with Luther's reading of Paul. The problem with Luther is that he inherited this idea that faith was intellectual, apart from works, right? It's all in the brain, which is why he fell into this trap. And anyone who sees a d disagreement between Paul and James here is also falling into this same trap. The scriptural message is not about belief or creating a creedal statement. It's about changing your behavior, pure and simple. Inevitably, when I bring this up, people will start asking, well, what's the point of being a Christian then, or going to church if we're just supposed to be a good person? Of course, there's tons of issues with the, the propositions themselves, like, you know, for one, being a good person, right? Scripturally, it's impossible to be a good person, so that's, you know, not even a thing. But, you know, I, I can kind of see, you know, what they're getting at here. But the answer should be clear as day. Church and the Christian life are important for the same reason any critical tool is important. They are designed to equip us for what we need to do. But this does not begin or end with the church. It begins and ends with Scripture. Scripture is the criterion. Church is the tool, right? Don't get them confused. I mean, yeah, you know, you could theoretically chop wood with a kitchen knife, but I'd much rather use an axe, or better yet, a chainsaw. This is the function of church. So just because it's not the most important thing does not mean that it's negligible. What is the most important thing, though, is the scripture, and it calls us to action, not having the right ideas. Because where do we stop? I mean, I've seen so many of my fellow Orthodox Christians get so anal about dogmatics to the point where you have to be well-read and well-versed in complicated theological lingo in order to understand it. I mean, like, for instance, Christians who get really opinionated as to whether or not Miaphysitism is really a heresy or not, or whether Palamism and Thomism are compatible. I mean, good Lord, guys. There are people starving in the world, and we're going to argue over semantics? I mean, come on. And that calls into question whether people who simply don't have the brain matter to contemplate this stuff can truly be sanctified in Christ. Now, I hope nobody would just come out and say that outright, but it really makes me wonder when people lay right belief as the critical measuring stick for salvation, as if this is all some cosmic game show. 
get the answer right or you'll go to hell. I mean, it's bizarre and it doesn't square at all with scripture, at least as, as I'm hearing it. I mean, you tell me what you hear. I mean, goodness, you know, I mean, let's listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, 21 through 27. Starting in verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Again, here, I don't see Christ being concerned with any sort of creedal statement. I don't see him being concerned with belief at all. He is teaching what is later reflected by James, that those who do the will of his Father in heaven will enter that kingdom. And what is that will? Well, it's laid out in Matthew 25. Let's hear it together, starting in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Then the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison? And did not minister to you. And he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So again, I mean, in that passage, it's it's clear that belief is not the issue, right? Because the unrighteous, they had a belief 
in God. They had a belief in Jesus. They called to him, Lord, Lord, and they did all sorts of crazy miracles and stuff in his name, but they did nothing for the neighbor. So what's really the important point that Jesus is making here, right? Think about it. I want to leave with one of my favorite quotes from probably my favorite saint of the Orthodox Church, if I had to pick one, and that is uh, Saint Maria of Paris. She once said, At the last judgment, I shall not be asked whether I was successful in my ascetic exercises, nor how many bows and prostrations I made. Instead, I will be asked, Did I feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the sick and the prisoners? That is all I shall be asked. And why did she say this? Because she heard and understood what Matthew was writing relating to the teaching of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I think that'll do for this episode, but you know, I could go on and on and on with this. So please don't cult over the creedal statement of your denomination, cult over the text itself, because at the end of the day, God is not calling us to be right in opinion, but to obey his words. That's the bottom line. There are no excuses, so go out and live scripturally. God bless you all. Pray for safe travels for Rowdy and his wife. And inshallah, God willing, we will continue our discussion of Genesis next week.